Good evening, everyone. I hate, I hate, <laughs> thanks, Jim. I hate to break up this love fest because everybody knows everybody else, and there are so many hugs and kisses. It's awesome. It's awesome. Thank you all so much for coming. My name is Chris Kiesling. I'm the Director of Archives and Special Collections. So on the behalf of the Department of Archives and Special Collections and the University Libraries, I'm really happy to see all of you here this evening. Um, we're in for a real treat, I think. Freya's got some great stuff lined up for us. Um, I'm going to introduce Tom Pope, who's going to talk a little bit about Freya, and then Norton Stillman from Noden Press is also going to say a few words, and then Freya will launch right in, and when we're all done, we'll retire to the atrium and have cake and ice cream. So enjoy the evening, and again, welcome everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, the nice thing about introducing Freya is that I don't have to say too much because she is too wonderful to even try to compete with. And so I'm just going to say that I, as her husband, I've been honored for more than 40 years to know her and to always be surprised and delighted by her. So thank you, Freya, for all of those years and all of those books of poetry. Uh, now I'm going to introduce Norton Stillman, who is the wonderful publisher of this latest book. Thank you, Norton. want to welcome everybody and I'm so proud to publish when I was young and old and it's uh, kind of like generation to generation. I used to know Freya's father when I was on Bookman and he would we would distribute his books and he would come up and always when he came and picked up his books he always would come up and visit with me which was so wonderful and now kind of the next iteration, I'm publishing Freya's book. So that's a wonderful thing. And uh, I'm very proud and honored to do it. And I know you're gonna have a wonderful evening tonight. And uh, so enjoy yourselves. And Freya, uh, you'll be uh, <laughs> coming down and having a wonderful night for people. Thanks. I really am very, <laughs> really want to thank the uh, University Libraries and Chris, Chris Kiesling for this evening and also for Nor to Norton Stillman. And my dad always came up to talk to Norton and, and hit the bookstores at the, at the same time. And um, also, A Anderson, Mr. Anderson, Elmer Anderson, my dad was very fond of him also and uh, really enjoyed his company and time. So thank you, and welcome to all of you. Welcome to all of you. Uh, you've met Tom, my husband, Tom Pope, and I want to mention also that the two people I absolutely had to hug are our sons, uh, Rowan Pope and Bly Pope, who are here with their significant others this evening, Kat and Claire. But um, they are visual artists, by the way, Rowan and Bly, and they have illustrated the covers of almost all my books, particularly the books uh, that were published by Red Dragonfly Press, which of course is, um, was the, uh, published by uh, Scott King, a wonderful friend of mine who unfortunately passed away about two years ago. However, I'm absolutely just delighted to be with Noden Press. I love the Noden Press 
group. I've been watching Margaret Hassey dancing through the hallways of Noden Press for years. It's just been great to be, to be here at, at Noden. Um, and also, it's wonderful to see old friends here, too, from high school, from college, um, and more recent wonderful friends in my life. So welcome. Welcome to all of you. There are four um, themes or motifs that are sort of reflected in my poems and prose that I uh, will be reading to you tonight. Um, and I'll just quickly mention they are mortality and dreams and humor and connection to the earth. So you'll be hearing some of those things as I read along. And if you need to come or go, feel free to come or go. And for the ice cream and cake, we get to eat it in here if we want to, so you don't have to stand out there. You can come in here and eat your ice cream and cake. So I, we can visit that way as well, if you like. Um, mortality. You're helping me tonight welcome ghosts here. Uh, it, it, in this 10th book of poetry, it's a major presence. And my father's papers are here, right down there somewhere. And maybe it's over there. I don't know where they are, Chris. <laughs> down. And uh, my mother's papers are there as well in the archives. And you'll be hearing poems about those family members and others probably. Uh, also, much of the book was written, of this one, when, when so many of my friends were dying or very ill and having a lot of serious problems, uh, um, including Scott King, of course. And also COVID was a part of this book. Whenever anybody tells me that they're going to read a book of poems that during, written during COVID, I think, oh, God, please don't do that. <laughs> um, but it's true. It, it's permeated much of our lives and also still does. So here's one, a poem called Family Letters. It's kind of, oh, first I want to read a poem to welcome all of you. It's called Old Friends, Old Friends. And it's from this book, the one that was published before uh, when I was young and old. This poem is called Old Friends, and it's for all of you. Old friends are a steady spring rain, or late summer sunshine edging into fall, or frosted leaves along a snowy path, a voice for all seasons saying, I know you. The older I grow, the more I fear I'll lose my old friends, as if too many years have scrolled by since the day we sprang forth, seeking each other. Old friend, I knew you before we met. I saw you in the window of my soul. I heard you in the steady millstone of my heart, grinding grain for our daily bread. You are sedimentary, rock-solid cousin earth, where I stand firmly astonished by your grace and truth. And gratitude comes to me and says, tell me anything and I will listen. Ask me anything and I will answer you. <laughs> Here is a poem based on the fact that the letters are downstairs and there are many, many letters there. I, w I went through a lot of them. My grandmother's letters are all in there because they were part of my mother's collection. And so here's a poem about that. It's called Family Letters. Family Letters. I journey up and down the roads my parents traveled 
together and apart, in box after box of faded pages that smell like stale bread and dusty violets. I meet grandparents, aunts, uncles, and children, troublemakers and saviors, fatalities and survivors, each with spoken and unspoken dreams. Until one black night in bed, I feel someone's body press against me. But when I dare to open my eyes, no one's there. Has my dead mother come back from the back for a caress, some comfort or peace? Has my dead father returned to revive himself with lost beauty? Sometimes someone has crossed the invisible barrier that is nothing but emptiness. Someone presses closer, felt on my skin and deep in the bone. Could it be that part of me wings across space and time toward whoever I'm becoming? And could this part of me become my oldest, closest friend? I think we really move on. We really move on. We need to move on. Um, okay. Here's another quick one in from this book. Uh, this one is called, this book is called Speak Mother, by the way. Somebody told me once very wisely that there was not a good title for a book because it mentions mothers, and nobody wants to read about mothers, um, <laughs> which I find, you know, that's insulting in a way. <laughs> but it may well be true, I don't know. Anyway, this is called Grandma Shorba, my mother's mother. Grandma Shorba's ragamuffin stew. During World War II, Grandma Shorba handed plates of bread and meat to strangers who asked for work in exchange for food. After chopping wood and mending fences, the lean, stoop-shouldered men went on their way. May God watch over them, Grandma said. I was glad I didn't have to follow them down the long train track silvering west. I didn't want to sleep beside a strange campfire around the bend in the next world. But I worried how they'd survive, and I asked my parents if they could live with us. My begging only made everyone nervous. Maybe Grandma's stories of the Good Samaritan and the loaves and fishes weren't true. If I'd been in charge, I'd have asked those men to stay. But Grandma, who trusted God, fed them, then sent them on their way. <laughs> and there were many, many of them. Um, okay, that's the mortality. <laughs> Moving on, I wanted to write, talk a little bit about dreams. Uh, a lot of the poems I write seem to um, come from dreams. Sometimes it's an image that's actually in the dream, so I put the image in the poem. Other times I'm reminded of something that I want to write about later because of some dream I've had. Maybe it's just an odd dream about anything, about birds, about sky, about someone running and trying to get away and can't get away, or whatever. And so that goes into the, into the poem later. It's very common for me to do that. And I think part of the situation for me was that when I was around 21, my father sent me a letter about dreams. And I wrote a, a memoir about my father, Frederick Manfred, the Minnesota writer, um, novelist, who lived for many years in Laverne and then also out here in Bloomington. And he, here's what he wrote to me about dreams. 
I think that you might, you know, I've probably read this to some of you before, but I think you may, uh, it, might, it might mean something for you, depending on how much you like to dream. I had written him to say, I had a dream last night, Dad, that you were on the cover of Time magazine. And he, of course, was delighted to hear that. Um, and he said, um, it's almost a cohinky dinky that you should be writing me about your Manfred on the first page of the time dream, and I should be writing you about enjoying your dreams and your nightmares. You should cultivate your dreams and your nightmares. Cultivate them because they're often the best part of your life. It's a sign, if your private dreamer will give you this, of being a creative person to be able to remember them afterwards. Most dead people alive today can't remember their dreams <laughs> because their dreamer knows they are not worthy of knowing about them. What I usually do is if a dream or a nightmare wakens me in the middle of the night is to hoist myself up on my pillow a little, not too high because then the dreamer in you becomes alarmed you're paying too much attention, and I relive the dream or the nightmare. Be thoroughly scared or moved or excited, whatever, by it, and yet with a little sideways smile, you should enjoy it too. If one allows one's dreamer to have the freedom to dream anything it or he or she wants and then is circumspect and polite when it, it or he or she offers the dream to you for you to look at, then you will dream more and more out loud, so to speak. And the more you do this, the tougher and healthier you'll be all your life. I think that's really true. I, 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 when I first uh, found my husband, Tamar, he found me, I had a great dream that said maybe this would be a good thing. I also dreamed about our sons before they were born. Um, it, it's very helpful. <laughs> uh, here's a couple examples of what I'm talking about. This, this is a dream I had when I was pregnant with my, our sons. We were living in California right by the ocean at the time in a rented apartment. And I uh, was wondering, what is it going to happen? To what's going to happen when I have twins? How's this? How am I going to get live my life since I have never had any children before? <laughs> so it's called tidal wave. How will I swim with both arms holding twin sons? Should I save the soft-hearted boy born with one raised fist, or the boy who first saw the stars beyond my face? Over and over, I choose them both, stroking toward the light. Why do I feel satisfied riding the curve of my death and theirs? I am doing what I can, even if it is never enough. <laughs> that's how twins are, and that's how children are, as you well know. And here's another one. This came right out of a dream also, this poem. It's called When My Dead Father Visits. Actually, he, this is the only one visit that he made. But <laughs> he, I couldn't, my father didn't come to me in dreams for a really long time. And John Calvin Rosmerski, a wonderful poet from Mankato, um, who taught at uh, Augie, uh, not Augie, um, Gustavus, Adolphus. Yes, thanks. And he um, told me, oh, no, just wait a while. You'll have a dream about your father. He'll, he'll come. So when my dead father visits, he speaks in a voice as familiar as the clear stream below my childhood home. Sometimes a woman accompanies him with two children, a girl and a boy. Sometimes he drives an ancient car and finds his way better than I can through labyrinthic city streets. When I ask what it's like to be dead, 
He cries, what do you mean dead? I'm very much alive, busy all day long. So sometimes I tell my children about their grandfather's visits. I tell them my dreams, deeper than memory. I tell them I'm grateful to talk with the dead one who is not dead. Because of him, I've come to love the living more. And another thing about my poetry, supposedly, <laughs> is that I love humor. And I love humor in poetry. I'm not very good at humor in poetry. Most of the poets I admire so terribly much often don't have very many humorous poems. Um, and truthfully, I don't really either. <laughs> um, it, it, to me, uh, the humor does arrive in a poem occasionally, because not because I'm trying to be funny, or even because that poet is trying to be funny, but because as you well know, uh, there are some poems that just evoke a kind of a laughter that comes from the recognition of the ridiculousness uh, and, uh, and sorrow of the human condition, condition. Humor, it can be born from anger and sorrow and heartfelt statements. And it can be, humor and sorrow can be mirror images also. So I had a friend once, he was a novelist, Philip Roth, and he, um, I told him once on, on the phone, I said, you know, I envy my brother, Fred. He's so witty, and Tom is witty, and my mother is witty. And I said, finally I said to him, well, how did you get so witty? And he said, and he said well, he was born less witty, but uh, his ability in that area, he said, arose from contact with his family, friends, neighbors, and the culture he was growing up in, a mostly Jewish neighborhood in Newark, New Jersey. And everyone, he said, had a wonderful sense of humor there. And then he went on, he said, I, and then he said, I became too witty for my own good. <laughs> and he said, now I feel, as an older person, that I've responded enough for one lifetime with my wit. And I hope to stress other things. As I age, trust and affection are more important, he said. Uh, it meant a lot to me to hear that, because then I didn't worry as much about being witty. And <laughs> it's a good thing. I'll read a poem about my need to laugh. It's at the beginning of the book I hope to read mostly from tonight. It, it's at the, my first thing here. And this is certainly during the COVID times. There's something wrong with my glasses, so I'm just going to have to see what happens here. In a sad time, what do I desire? In sad time, in a sad time, what do I desire? I want to laugh, a liquid laugh, every gurgling morsel of me cascading like water over singing stones. Laugh until my heart and lungs are empty and go on laughing until I'm well fed and fall in love with everything. Let go of my place and my body in that place and surrender to nonstop giggles, gasps, chortles, and chuckles. Laugh until I cry and discover sapphires, the sapphires, tumbling from my eyes as tears, rising from a deep sea of hope and sorrow. Laugh, because the more I remember and then forget, the more I will be free. So if anybody here is very funny, I would be very happy to meet you <laughs> later this evening. Um, I do have something I wanted to read from a book I wrote about our sons. I don't want to over... Can I borrow your... your... Thanks. 
We started at approximately seven, I hope. About five after seven. Okay. Well, <laughs> I want to read this. I wrote a book about our sons. I didn't get it published till they were 35 so that they wouldn't die of total embarrassment. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so um, they were, gosh, they were funny. And I thought this, I thought this would be, I was very old when, we, when I had my children. Tom was young, but I was old. <laughs> I stayed old. And, I don't know. Just going to make it up a lot. Um, so this was a, when Blow on, Blow, Rowan and Bly were quite fascinated. They were about four years old, not even quite four. And um, they were, um, this book is published by Noden Press, by the way. It's called Raising Twins, a True Life Adventure. And they're fascinated by God. They were fascinated by infinity. I mean, I mean, even I don't know how to be that way. But anyway, they were grappling with these concepts uh, at the same developmental level. So they were helping each other delve more deeply into this mystery. And they followed up on each other's questions, and they challenged each other at every, at every level, and including the intellectual levels, and forcing more penetrating questions, I think, often. And so, and we answered them the best we could. So you're going to hear how horribly we answer them sometimes. <laughs> Um, but the first question here is Bly asked, is God the chair? Yes, Tom said, in a way God is the chair. So we can sit on God, Rowan asked. Yes, and he can sit on you. <laughs> is God in the table too, Bly wondered. Yes, in a way, Tom said, he is in the table. God is everywhere, God is everything. But where, where is he, Rowan asked. You can't see him, Tom said. He's everywhere, but you can't really see him. Well, then God is a secret, Rowan said. Exactly, I said. <laughs> but is God bigger, is he the biggest secret, Bly asked. I don't know, Tom said, what do you think? <laughs> well, he might be the biggest if he really is everywhere, Bly said. A few days later, the boys were lolling about in the kitchen, sucking blissfully on popsicles, and Rowan asked, is God a popsicle? <laughs> sure, I guess God is a popsicle since he's everything, I said. Then I can eat God, Rowan said. <laughs> yes, God is everything. He is in the food, even that food that you eat, Tom said. Dad, is God infinity, Bly asked. Yes, God is infinity. Well, I know what infinity is, Bly said, and he made a circle with his arms. This is infinity. That's right, Tom said. So infinity is zero, Bly said. <laughs> uh, infinity is the biggest number in the world, Tom said. <laughs> you can't see infinity, Bly said. Not really, no, Tom said. Then God is infinity, said Bly. That's very possible, said Tom. <laughs> Is Grandma God, Rowan wondered. Well, yes, in a way, Grandma is God, and everyone is God. Is Grandma bigger than God, Rowan wondered. No, God is biggest, Tom said. Is God bigger than anything, Rowan asked. Yes, he's the biggest thing in the world, Tom said. He is also the smallest, I said. And sometimes he's not called God. He's called Wakantanka, or Allah, or or Gitchi Manitou. God is not Manitou, Bly interrupted, outraged. He's just called God. <laughs> well, 
you are called Bly, and you are also called Nicholas, so why can't God be called different names? Bly is just Bly, and don't you say another word or I'll throw you out the window. <sighs> well, a few days later, I was lolling around myself without a, without a popsicle, and Bly came to me and he said, let me tell you something, Mom. I had a dream last night. It was so secret, it was more secret than God. Oh, more secret than God, I said. Yes, it was so secret, I can't tell you. It was so secret, I can't remember. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing, Bly, I said. You can't hear it, Mom, and you can't draw it. But you can buy it in a store. <laughs> and then Bly whispered in my ear, it's 10 fig newtons. <laughs> So, I've learned a lot from this experience myself. Okay, that's, I want to, um, another thing that I'm very interested in in my poetry is connection with the earth, being outdoors. I know many of you, my friends, are that way too. And so mostly I'm going to read some things from when I was young and old here, and you'll see how that theme fits into a lot of my work too. Um, Young and Old, it begins with a poem called, the poem for the title of the book, which is called When I Was Young and Old. And actually, this poem is a, is a connection between things that actually happened in images from those things and events, and also images of dreams. So it's a mingling, it's a scrambled egg, or it's, it's scrambled eggs, it's mixing. When I was young and old, Out of nowhere, we found ourselves stretched out under the sun on the summer lawn, and I saw how lively, how supple he was in each new pose as I breathed in, yes, and out, yes. And when we sat down to eat, I heard every word he spoke, yes, as if he knew I would always understand. And I asked for soup that was green and wild, and he wanted to taste it, and I said, yes, again. And on the mountain, we slid so smoothly through snowdrifts down icy steep ravines on our two simple matter-of-fact feet, yes. And when I wandered off alone, the wolf who followed us did not attack, but went his solitary way. So I felt safe, yes. And when we lay down together at last, I was amazed how much care he gave to my humble forgotten ears and cosmic toes. And when he kissed me, I slipped like lightning into another world. Yes, and yes, and yes. This all happened when he was young and I was old. And I was young and he was old. And it still happens whenever a dream arrives at night to assure me it was all meant to be. But now I wonder, is my dream more alive than the poems I write about the dream? And is my life as alive, as real as the poem or the dream? Yes, and yes, and yes. <laughs> you 
Here's a little poem um, about swimming. I have a lot of poems about swimming. I know some of you love to swim so much. Um, it's called Free Swimmer. Free Swimmer. When I swim out into the lake and travel the ancient waterways, the shifting current embraces me and convinces me that I have fins and a tail and that I'm stronger and more supple than I will ever be on land. Everything is suddenly so clear. I don't need or want anyone. They're welcome to join me, but it's sweeter if they don't. I don't want anything either, since everything is here, fresh and fishy, cool and warm, sparkling and somber, with the oldest colors and shapes on earth each a flowing part of where and who I am, now and long ago and in times to come. I am not any one or any one thing, and yet I've never felt so sure of my next move. The joy of swimming. And then to end that section of the book, there's a poem, and I honestly don't know what it means. So what, what the hell this poem means, you tell me. I don't know. I don't know what this poem means. It's called Before the After and After the Before. I, I really looked at it and wondered, did I actually write this? Um, <laughs> and I've, I've heard other poets say that. I've heard Robert Bly say that. Did I write this? Um, before the After, After the Before. He was dead slick keen, the man in my dreams last night. Lanky legs, white in the moonlight, black in the lake light, blue in the starlight, green in the forest light, and I knew he'd always be with me before the after and after the before. He was a real man and a made-up man, and in the middle of our longed-for night, our old night, our young night, our forever beloved night, I felt as safe as first love, as last love, as never or forever love, with nowhere and everywhere to go. Just us, whoever we were, whoever we are, real or imagined or both, call it marriage or call it luck, it's what we lived through and live through, what we invented and invent, with all our power and weakness, but can never control or understand. And in the long run and the short run, all last night, in every kind of light, the man in my dream was dead, slick, keen. <laughs> so if you meet, meet these people, I don't know. It's a very strange poem. I think it's strange anyway. Um, I'd like to read a poem now. Um, it's pretty obvious what this poem is about, and I, or who it's about, too. So I'll just read it. It's called, At 70, He Plants a Tree. And it's about, it's for Tom. <laughs> it's for Tom. After we chose a tree, he dug a hole, first with a shovel, then with his bare hands, through dirt, clay, and rocks as big as fists, kneeling on a scrap of cardboard to, perfect, to protect his knees, sweat streaming down his gritty shirt. And after he set the little cedar in place, surrounded the roots with black soil, and watered and watered again, he stood up and came inside, groaning but also sighing happy, and drew off his sodden clothes and showered and stretched out on our bed and fell asleep. 
and everything he'd done to plant that tree, to guard our north-facing front door, was so arduous, I could not do it myself. Not anymore, now that I'm only good for a stroll, a languid swim, or cooking soup for dinner. I felt as if he'd finally given birth, when so far I've always been the only mother here. I thought that tree was close to a miracle, and I showed it to our sons, who were pleased, even proud. They nodded and approved as if they were our doting parents. I could see that they planned to plant their own trees like their father, this hardy man in league with earth, air, water, and the hard-earned promise of growth. It, it terrified me to see how strong some people can be. I can only celebrate by loving all of them with every bit of wrinkled bark and sweet sap left in my aging brain and veins. Well, thank you for the tree. <laughs> and these, um, this poem is um, a poem for our sons. It's called Dinner with Our Sons. This is after they find out what infinity is and they're very clear about it. <laughs> Dinner with Our Sons. We drink in the keen eyes, dark eyebrows, and deep cadences of the two beloved men across from us at the table. We rejoice in their leaping brains and the rich humor that echoes generations buried not so many miles away. We lean eagerly, gratefully into our future and their future, wondering how long we can remain beside them, navigating this wild river with no wish to reach the unknown country from which no man returns, from which no one returns. Not yet, we say. Our family works hard, pencils to paper, brushes to canvas, songs, stories, pictures, and poems in our hearts. But tonight, we're wrapped in a sacred rhythm, each word part of a precious symphony of sharing dinner with our sons. Well, um, I want to read a couple more poems, and I want more than a couple because I want to be sure I read some prose at the end. Um, so now where are we? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're okay. <laughs> Phew. Um, this next poem is called High School Friends because they're here. <laughs> if you hadn't come here, I wouldn't even be this poem. I went to Laverne High School in the southwest corner of the state, um, and uh, that was the last two years of high school for me, and I went to Bloomington High School in the suburb the first two years. High School Friends. Seven women in their 70s gather on a restaurant patio in the thrall of spring, shoulders stooped, hair growing gray, sharing healthy salads, and pancakes steeped in syrup. As we speak, our faces ignite and vivid images rush and flow. A new part-time job, a trip to Alaska, a good library book, a serious operation, a garden full of cabbages and tomatoes. Then the first death, a beloved husband, the sweeping grief, the tear-washed face cleansed of hope and joy. But born again with a dream we all share, a new grandchild coming soon. Who will die next? Me, my beloved, you, or yours? And what do we truly know or feel about dying 
even as death embraces us from all sides and guides us through our days. I don't know if we trust each other enough to share the tears and truths of life, but we do feel the joy and comfort of long friendships that bind us together in the face of trouble. We strolled the halls of our small town school together, young faces full of fervor, books held tight to our chests, bones growing as swiftly as our shifting desires and dreams. And because we knew each other then, once and for all, we feel safe for the moment in each other's welcoming arms. And I wrote that after I had a wonderful lunch with friends from Laverne. And I don't make all the lunches that they have <laughs> sometimes, but um, often I don't make them. But it I seems like I'm always working on 10 o'clock in the morning on the weekdays for one thing. But um, it's, it's for my high school friends. Here's a poem about my mother. It's called The Last Rose of Summer. My mother never forgot to celebrate and mourn the last rose of summer. She held it out to me with a wistful smile so I could inhale the happiness mixed with sadness in her voice. Look, the last rose. I bowed to the soft petals and sharp thorns, to the immensity of that shared moment. And years later, I still see her eyes open to beauty, yet forever shaded with sorrow, most sentient and beautiful mother. We endured our bumbling tangles and jousts, our painful wondering about what we meant or didn't mean to say. But we never forgot the last rose, breathing softly in its slim glass vase until it lost its glory and folded away, folded itself away. This, the last rose, the last rose of summer is a promise and a regret, a reward, a warning, and a thorny truth. It is a curious child, a ripening adult, and an aged and dying woman. It is a mother's gift, precious as one moment, one breath in and out. Oh, so the mothers are just fantastic, so it's time they're honored, all of them. Um, I have a, one last poem, but I don't, I think I'll, pass on that one and just move on to the end. I have two things I wanted to read together very much um, at the end here. Um, they, one of them is a poem. It's, oh, I'm sorry, I do have one other poem I want to read from this book. This is a poem about a friend of mine, a more recent friend of mine, after high school, after college, after, after. And um, it's written uh, about a woman I loved who um, was a uh, invited me to be in her book group, and now I'm in the book group, but it's a wonderful book group. And her name is Michaela Mahati. She was an architect. And um, I have a whole series of poems I wrote about her, so I'm just going to read one here. And it's called, um, In a Dream My Friend Sails Toward Me. In other words, here we back in dreams again. Back in dreams. In a dream, my friend sails toward me, smiling her hair grown only a few curly inches. She says, I know my path will be short. I smile back at her, blessed by this woman I love, who can no longer talk and share with me, since the friend she turns to now is death. 
This dream is true, but nothing she has meant to me will pass away. Her last breath will become my first breath each time I breathe. She'll live in my heart, the way the last wave rolls on shore with the same unfailing rhythm as the first, then fades away, then returns, regaining us, rejoining us again and again, lending its voice to the planet's turning. Oh, I'm sure you all have friends. Okay, the last thing I want to read is a double thing. Um, it is um, a poem called My Home Away from Words, and it also is the very last thing in this book that's written in prose. I wanted to go back and forth between poetry and prose in this book, uh, quite frankly, because I love writing uh, prose as much as poetry, but I haven't had as much success um, selling my prose. Um, and um, I do have... Now these four short pieces of prose in here are four uh, pieces, which is part of a much larger book I wrote called uh, Hello, I Love You, which is kind of a tour of the 60s, um, and, uh, and which I haven't even sent out yet to anybody. So if you are, any of you are editors or publishers. Um, anyway, um, it, it, that, that book is, um, it's a, what do you call it, a fictionalized memoir. So it's a memoir, but at times, you know, because of memory and the way your, our brains work, it goes off into probably made-up things, too. <laughs> but anyway, so the, at the end, I'll read that piece of prose, and then here's the poem that I felt goes with it very much. Um, it's called My Home Away From Her Words, because, you see, um, uh, there's a deep connection to the earth that I feel. Um, so... And it's maybe it's mystical. I, I don't know, but maybe as, as someone, my husband was saying, maybe it's more magical than mystical. Um, at any rate, the experience is more palpable sometimes to me than than anything that I've ever felt. A home way away from words is a poem. I slip my lanky self into the silver smiling lake and swim along the shore to watch the lake weeds sway, green and gray, and swarming fleeting fish the size of sardines and salad plates. I stop to rest on a rock shaped like a mushroom, slick with hairy green moss, where I try to stand until I slide off and stroke back through pond weed sprouting up from the darkness below where dead trees lie, sodden, broken, and studded with shells. In the distance, I see my love on shore, reading and watching out for me. He knows I have a yearning sadness in my heart that eases, eases when I swim on and on without thinking into the arms of the woman I become, caressed by water, my home away from words. And finally, this last piece of prose is entitled Three Feet Under, and I have to read that. We can have questions and answers afterwards if you want, but don't ask me what God is, and don't just... <laughs> I have questions for you, though, if, if not answers. This is uh, Three Feet Under, and I'll just, I don't know. Tom and I, Tom and I, spent the first four days of our honeymoon 
in a farmhouse on the Missouri River, lent to us by my old friends, Sam and Greta from South Dakota. Then we headed west toward California with Margie and Mel, two friends from Boston who wanted to see the Black Hills. After a long day of camping through the Badlands, we stopped for burgers and beer at a roadside bar in the middle of the prairie east of Deadwood. Tom and Margie and Mel started a conversation about space and time and destiny and civilization while I wandered outside to feed an apple to a lone horse grazing in the corral behind the bar. An hour later, the four of them came out of the bar talking about life and death and the fate of the human race. Mel taught at Harvard, you see, and Tom is even, you know, like, like that too, sort of. So anyway, <laughs> I listened. I listened very carefully and mindfully to every word, but I couldn't find a thing to say. We drove on through the winding uphill, downhill road until the sky turned rose red and then dark purple, and we all agreed to stop and find a place to sleep on the prairie. We slowed down, looking for a good spot to spread our sleeping bags. Our car crept past herds of grazing deer and a startled jackrabbit or two until we came to a large fenced area where a herd of bison stood like giant boulders, staring west into the last visage of the sunset. The open, unfenced prairie surrounded the bison, tall, bronzed grasses reaching toward a newly risen full moon, the color of honey. We pulled off the road and bumped across a hummocky field and parked. Tom and I dragged our sleeping bags from the car and tucked ourselves away on one side of a sloping hill, and Margie and Mel laid out their sleeping bags 50 feet away. And Tom and I tried to zip our bags together, but after a while, a brief struggle, we gave up and fell asleep next to each other in separate bags. Half an hour later, coming out of a dead sleep, I heard voices. I propped myself up on one elbow and saw a black and white police car pulled up next to our car with both its front doors open and a static voice from a two-way radio bristling into the darkness. Two officers with flashlights stood next to their open doors, flashing their beams past us several times before they pinpointed our sleeping bags. I jumped up, stepped into my sandals, and went down to talk with them. The officers' voices were razor sharp and suspicious as I stumbled toward them, half asleep, reaching out to take hold of sagebrush, a wispy tobacco plant, a spindly baby tree, anything on my path, straining to get back into the waking world. When I reached the police car, the shorter officer frowned at me, and the taller officer said, Hello there. Hello, I said. So what are you folks doing out here? He asked. Sleeping, I stammered, sleeping. We were driving, we got tired, and the shorter one interrupted. Not here, you don't sleep. On state park ground, it's illegal. I am, I'm sorry, I said. We didn't know it was illegal, and we didn't want to drive any farther in the dark. The taller officer grunted. How many of you are there? Me and my husband and two friends. Where are you from, then? I'm from Minnesota, and Tom's from New Jersey, and my friends are from Boston, and they've never seen this, uh, South Dakota, let alone the Black Hills. The tall one threw the light of his flashlight across the grass until it spotlighted Tom's pale white face staring out of his sleeping bag, and then the two even paler white faces of Margie and Mel. I felt suddenly ticked off at all three of them. Why didn't they come down and help me talk to the police? <laughs> the short officer gestured. 
You guys, you can camp up the roadways at the campground, but this is state park land. How far up the road, I asked. Maybe 20, he said. I sighed, and the tall officer said, it's a ways. Yes, I said. He shrugged. So, tell you what, I'll tell you what, you folks go ahead and sleep here tonight, but you gotta get out by dawn or the guys on the next shift will be pissed because we let you stay. And don't make a practice to sleep in areas that aren't designated for camping, it's dangerous. I am sorry, I said. I waved at the hills. What sort of danger should we look for out here? He paused, and he looked at the short officer, and the short officer looked at him, and finally the tall one said, well, there's coyotes, but I suppose they're more scared of us than we are of them. There's a cactus all over the place, the short one said. Takes days, weeks to get prickly pear out of your skin. The point is, you never know what's gonna come along. You see what I mean? Sure, I said, but there haven't been any murders out here, have there, or, or robberies? You mean two-footed trouble, the tall one said. Nope. He looked at the short one who said, nope. The tall one turned off his flashlight and looked around at the looming moon, at the black hills hulking in the distance, at the huffing bison in their own closure, and then he spit with great satisfaction into the wind and watched it, watched it float past uh, the three of us and land in the dirt about 10 feet away. He grinned at his partner. What a job, he said. Yep, the short one smiled. He turned off his flashlight and pulled out a pack of Chesterfields and offered one to me. And when I shook my head, he lit one up for himself. Can't believe they pay us. <laughs> the tall one set one foot clad with a dusty black police boot up on a nearby rock, and he cocked his head to look up at the stars. Yep, I feel like a bank robber, he said. <laughs> then he gave the short cop a thumbs up, thumbs up sign, and they slipped into their squad car and bumped off across the prairie grass to the road where they flicked their headlights a few times to say goodbye and drove rapidly away. I walked through the heavy dew to the sleeping bags and I announced, it's okay, we can stay. But Tom and Margie and Mel knew that because they were tucked back in their sleeping bags already, their heads covered, maybe even asleep. I crawled in and I tugged my zipper up to my chin and laid there and stared up at the moon. The bison in the nearby enclosure huffed out, out, out. I never heard the bison breathe in, though I waited, and after a while I closed my eyes. And whether or not I was still awake, I felt the earth pull at the whole length of my body. The prairie opened up and drew me in until I was lying about three feet under the surface, cradled as if I were in a mother's, father's, or father's arms. The suck of the earth was so intent and palpable, I thought for a moment that maybe I should wrestle or struggle my way back up to grass level again, or I'd never get out. But after another moment, I decided to let go. My face, my arms and legs, my chest, my spine went soft, and I thought, half awake, if death is like this, I'll die gladly. When I woke at dawn, I was still three feet underground. Eyes closed, safe and warm. And when I was ready, the earth gave a shove between my shoulder blades and against the back of my thighs and pushed me back up like a mouth thrusting forth a tongue. My eyes opened and blinked into the sun, and I knew what the earth had given me that night. It was space and time, 
and destiny and civilization, and life and death and the face and the fate and the fate of the human race, all rolled into one, but without the words. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for coming. I know that you, I don't even know exactly what time it is, but it's almost eight, and we have questions and answers, or we can have not questions and answers. <laughs> whatever you, whatever you most would like to do. I don't know. Do you have any answers? <laughs> Good. <laughs> any questions, Bly? <laughs> How about you, Ro? <laughs> well. I have questions for you because I'd like to know what your most amazing experiences were out in the natural world. I know many of you spend a lot of time out there when you can, are able to. And it did occur to me, by the way, that this experience that happened to me, I mean, heaven's sake, I was probably 31 in, in South Dakota going west there. Um, and I thought, um, you know, I, I know that murders do occur out there, actually. And I know that... Um, that I wonder what would have happened if I were not white, too. I wondered that. White or whatever I was. But anyway, what, um, anything occur to any of you? Well, I, too, am a swimmer, and I think both of us are descendants you, uh, of those cousins about 150 million years ago, the pinnipeds and the cetaceans who walked around this earth and said, are you kidding me? Why do we want to walk around in this gravity where we can go into that buoyancy? And you write so beautifully, and I mean, swimming is, in the water is your real home, right? It feels like that. Yeah. Me too. It is much more home. Yeah. Was it always that way when you were very young? I don't know. I, grew, I mean, I think like a lot of us who grew up swimming, but I, I, I thought of it much, much later. I mean, last, at the end of last summer, I, I was Stretch out in the waters of Lake Huron, just lie in the water, seeing 25 feet, and I said, I don't want to ever get out. Yeah. And I meant it. I mean, it just it was in heaven. Yeah. And I know you're there, and it's, yeah. uh, you've written a lot about it. You've been yeah. swimming, and swimming with old man turtles and the rest. Yeah. I like the way so much that the water changes with every bit of the weather. No matter what the weather changes, the water immediately reflects it. Yes. So I was on a camping trip and um, doing some canoeing back and forth at different lakes. And I was with two women, and they were they were paddling, and I was right in the middle. So I had a chance to just kind of look around, and all of a sudden I realized the the lake was lower, and all of the rocks had carvings on them, all pointing in a direction. And um, so we were right in the center of this place. And our canoe stopped, and they saw it about the same time I did. It was just like, oh my god, it was like a hit of energy. And we went back to the campsite, and they had the same experience. They, probably simultaneously, who knows? But it was a magical, magical moment. Yeah. Is that, this was an like ancient underwater art? I'm not sure what it was. Yeah. It looked like it could have been. It was carved. A what? It was carved. Oh. Mm -hmm. 
Well, thank you for coming. Let's have some ice cream and cake. <laughs> <laughs>